You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out and the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Thanks for having us, Dave. You know, Dave, I'm honestly, if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little, I have a little bit of anxiety. This is kind of new territory for me. So I figured I may uh, crack a beer for anxiety's sake. Does that work for you? Oh, heck yeah. There you go. I love that. That's the crack. That's actually the the sound I was going to do intro intro the podcast with a beer cracking. But uh, <laughs> I love it. I was like have, have you thought about doing this before? You know, it might loosen people up. Yeah, you know, we always do. The funny thing is is I definitely have, have had plenty of beers during the podcast, but a lot of these we do early in the morning, you know, earlier, so typically it's coffee. Fair. It's good to be the second podcast here. Yeah, the second wave is definitely good, and uh, and it's I I mean that's the kind of the funny thing is that you know what is too early to have a to crack a beer? That's the big question of the day. I know it's noon where you're at, so we're gonna we're gonna count that. Yeah, actually, it's uh, it's still eleven, so we're I'm not quite. I always say I use the ten on the river. I, I always use the ten a.m. rule. If you're on the river, as long as you wait till ten a.m., you're doing okay. Good deal. <laughs> so all right, so we got uh, we got Yosemite, and we were just uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday about more of like climbing and they were and i asked him i said why what is the greatest you know how does yosemite rank as far as climbing and he was like it's the greatest in the world and that like that was it and i was like wow okay so this is i mean you guys are in this place what does it feel like because i know you you've worked around some other places around the west i mean how does yosemite feel being there and fishing there you know, it's an inspiring place with inspiring people. Like one of my favorite places to start a guided trip is at the base of El Cap, which, you know, the nose on El Cap is arguably the most famous rock climb in the world. So that's a pretty, pretty neat place to be able to start a day, especially when people have never been there before. And arguably one of my favorite things is as being a guide in a place like this is just seeing it with fresh eyes. Yeah, right, right, right. So you can start. That's amazing. So you can literally start fishing and catch a fish and look up and see people climbing the face of this massive 3000 foot rock oh absolutely the best in the world right there uh you're parking next to them i, I tell people it's kind of like if you I, i've never lived in hawaii but for those people who live like on the north shore in hawaii like where the bonsai pipeline would be i mean if you live there you're probably friends with like the world professional surfers it's like that uh where david and i live you know not only do they come from around the world to climb all the rocks but um, oftentimes they're your neighbors and, um, you know, they're some of the most recognized climbers in the world. You know, Yosemite is here. We're pretty fortunate. I, I consider myself, you know, grateful all the time to be able to operate in a place that's the crown jewel of the national park system. 
you know, we get about 4 million visitors a year, the majority of which come in, you know, the, the summer months here. It's been a little bit of a crapshoot this year just because we got rid of our permit system. So it's definitely been a packed park. But, uh, you know, oh wow. one of the things I like to remind people is, you know, there's always opportunities to be had that are right under your nose. So just don't be lazy. Be curious. You know, I tell clients the five minute rule. You want to park. You want to walk from your car. You know, just try try to do a little bit of exploration because it really is even during some of the busiest days that have been this summer. You know, Greg and I have been able to do hikes where we don't see anybody. Right. That's it. That's that stat. Whatever it is like 90 95% of the people that visit national parks don't leave, go 50 feet from their car or something like that. Yeah. And like 70 odd percent of all visitation just stays in Yosemite Valley. Yosemite Valley is a 15 mile long valley. It's no more than a mile wide at any given point, And that gets the significant majority of visitation. So if I can kind of encourage some of our visitors listening on this program to kind of branch out and try to explore some of the other corners of the park, you have 1200 square miles, you know, off of Tioga Road here in the high country, we have the second largest roadless area in the lower 48. So like if you're into if you're into backcountry fishing, if you're into exploring the backcountry, I mean there's endless opportunities here. But yeah, people people want to park, they want to take their Instagram photo, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's for me, that's what it would be. I mean, I, I didn't even realize that the roadless thing, because I'm guessing I think the what the Frank Church wilderness in Idaho is probably yep. the biggest, right? You got yeah, it. Two yep. million acres, something like that. Yep. And I've been in that one and that one is a, a amazing, you know, trip as well, but th this is cool. So you're in uh, California, which is a huge state, lots of people, but you can literally get to Yosemite and get away from the crowds. And, and I would love to talk more about the backcountry. today. We're going to cover a little bit on, you know, fishing. We're going to talk a little about, um, basically bears, you know, how do you keep, how do you stay safe out there? We're going to dig into that today. Um, but let's take it back real quick to you guys so we don't miss that on where you're coming from, the shop. So first of all, get, let us know what's the out, you know, the program you guys have going. And then let's talk about, you know, how you guys got into this, how you found yourself in Yosemite. Yeah, so Greg and I both operate our own independent guide services here. Uh, we started out working together. Long story short, California changed some independent contractor rules, and uh, we started operating our own company. Um, I I was fortunate enough to grow up on a wild and scenic river in Ohio, and that's kind of that's kind of where it all started. I had outdoorsy parents that encouraged me to explore. You know, the that creek. You know kick-saining crawfish, chasing after endangered darters and mussels. You know, I had that kind of a childhood that definitely inspired me to kind of continue this path. I guess my first time fly fishing was out on a trip with the family out west to Telluride. Um, we'd go to this ranch run by this gentleman, Mike Farney, who was an Olympic skier. And he definitely inspired me to kind of inspired my confidence, you know, took me up my first 14er. Um, you know, would tell me, Hey, you're going to come run the ranch someday, or, Hey, you're going to run a fly fishing program for me someday. So I guess that kind of planted a seed, but my dad's always been, you know, that's kind of what brings us together is fishing. You know, he took me when I was two, he started taking me fly fishing when I was seven, you know, since I think if I remember right, there was like a third grade paper or something where I was like, I want to, I want to own a fly fishing outfit or service <laughs> when I'm over. So older. So, you know, you it's kind of living the dream. And then I serendipitously ended up here in California when I was about 15, 16 years old. And at that point in life, you know, you're a teenager, you, you kind of take things for granted. But, you know, looking back on it, it was an incredible opportunity to be able to, you know, you'd, you'd wash dishes in your kitchen, your friend's kitchen sink, and you'd be looking out the window at Half Dome. Or you'd like, you know, go in your buddy's backyard and go swim behind a waterfall. So it was a really fortunate place to kind of, you know, grow up as a young man. 
So, wow. And this is uh, just so we get this straight. Cause sometimes this stuff that, that, that was David, that was you just describe yeah. that David. Yeah. All right. Perfect. So, uh, so, and it is a little confusing because we got, we got the two, the names, the first names and the last names here. So we got, uh, again, David Gregory and Gregory Nesfor. So, so Greg, uh, Greg, do you go by Gregory or Greg? Yeah, I go by Greg. Yeah, Greg. So Greg, give us your, uh, how, how'd you w- wind up in Yosemite? Yeah. Um, I wound up in Yosemite, uh, out of college. I had an internship. That internship took me to the national parks. I started out at Channel Islands as a kayaking guide. Uh, this was back in 98. I uh, got to know some rangers, and then um, the, my girlfriend at the time uh, had some friends up in Tuolumne Meadows who were rangers. We came up and visited, and uh, next year I applied, and I became a ranger in Yosemite in 2003. And I uh, did my rangering until t- 2016. I was an interpreter and then a uh, wilderness backcountry ranger. And um, on my days off, or even as a ranger, I was always fishing uh, the Merced River. Um, I was fishing the backcountry lakes. And um, I was kind of the ranger, always had a fly rod in my hand. And uh, I was always getting the fishing report to the public. And uh, over time, I just started learning with my good buddy, Rob. Uh, David and I have a good buddy, Rob, who lives up in Tuolumne to this day. And um, in 2015, David approached me in my office up in Tuolumne Meadows and just said, hey, you don't know who I am. My name is David Gregory. I, uh, I run an outfitter, Yosemite Outfitters, along with uh, my friend Nick and Rick, uh, who are no longer uh, fishing here locally, but uh, we're still good friends. He said, I'd like to offer you a job, and um, I got it approved with the park. And on my days off, I was taking people fishing, and um, I started doing that in 2016. I did that. I liked it so much that in 2017, I, I decided just to start guiding full-time. And um, I've been doing that off and on now here in California, a little bit in Oregon. And uh, I just really enjoy it. And, um, you know, I've, throughout my career in fly fishing, which is a relatively short career compared to David, I've only been fly fishing about 14 years. Um, it's taken me to wonderful places. And um, I always come back home. Yosemite has always been home for me. And it's been 20 years now, with about five years of a gap. And um, I just love working with David. Um, we're out on the water all the time. We don't see a lot of fishing pressure here. And it's just wonderful. Yo- um, Yosemite's got gravity. It always brings you back, even when you try to leave. You know, it's just one of those places that's that special. And then really, we're fortunate. You know, a lot of the people... We're, we're next to all these major metropolitan areas, and a lot of Southern California heads to the east side, but the west slope, we don't get a whole lot of pressure. So, I, you know, m- the majority of time when we're out on the river, we don't see people, which is one of the best things. That's something that I think both of us look for when we're out to have kind of a wilderness experience. And there's this, I mean, there's all types of water here. I mean, this year's been incredible because the amount of snow. I mean, the Merced River is just now starting to fish uh, well because uh, and it's been really high um, compared to normal years. But, um, you know, the early season, we have all these small creeks. And I'm talking small stuff that you would never even expect fish to be in. Um, that's for, like, our, our, our clients who really like to cast. If you like to challenge yourself, you know, casting. But, I mean, you have lakes, if that's your thing. But we have all, a lot of water. You know, this park is 750,000 um, square kilometers. And so it's you know, they'll say it's, it's it's bigger than Rhode Island. You know, I'm not sure what that means. Because if Rhode Island's just a really small state, or if we're just a really big national park. But but you know, it's the watershed of the Tuolumne and the Merced Rivers. Uh, it's all its tributaries. That's what makes the national park boundary, and it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the creeks go on for miles and miles. 
Right. And you guys have, and it sounds like there's not a lot of uh, guiding or even fishing pressure. And is that mainly just because it's known for the national park and people yeah. don't quite understand the, the resource there for fishing? People put the blindfolders on, right? We're a world famous rock climbing destination. You know, it's, it's iconic waterfalls and rock landscapes captivate visitors. But so often I bump into people in the park and they're like, there's fish here. I didn't even know there was fish in the Merced <laughs> right. River, you know? So like, even with us, we get an innate amount of beginners, right? People that kind of go on the family yeah. vacation and say, well, what do we do now? You know, a lot of last minute phone calls, a lot of people that are saying, hey, I watched her runs through it. Or, hey, I saw somebody do this on the river. And so, you know, I, I consider myself pretty fortunate to be able to to have those opportunities to teach people for the first time and hopefully create a lifelong angler. But really, I, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I think you're too busy looking up and you're not looking down at the river, which can be a blessing too. It's a good reminder to do that even for some of our experienced you know, folks that come out on the river. Um, but for whatever reason, people, people don't think about fishing when they think about Yosemite, right? Yellowstone has a storied history. There's outfitters on every corner. I mean, arguably better fishing, but it's one hell of a backdrop here. Right. Wow. This is cool. And yeah, yeah. and Yellowstone isn't that far away, Roy, when you think about it. I mean, it's a little bit of a drive, but you could cruise up kind of uh, northeast from there and yeah, head into Yellowstone. And you are going to get a lot of pressure there because it's known for its fishing and, and even everything around Yellowstone. But this is great. So I think for me, I would be thinking, you know, I'm coming in, we're coming in, we're going to do a backcountry trip. I mean, it seems yeah. like that would be awesome to get the backpacks ready, get the gear and just go in and just disappear into the, and is that, is that kind of the way it is when you get out there? Do you, are there fish kind of scattered in any stream you check out, you can find some, some fish or how's that look? There is, there's, you know, there's countless miles of rivers and creeks, but there's 250 fish bearing lakes. So really, if you want to, you know, point your finger at a map and kind of explore your curiosity, curiosity, excuse me, more often than not, you're going to find something that's arguably user friendly and a beautiful place to backpack, but that has fish, right? Yeah. Or even for the day, even the day trips, I mean, you just start walking down the creek and, you know, you're in the wilderness, you know, once you go around that corner 50 feet, you know, and you get away from the road, you can't hear the cars anymore. I mean, even just a four or five hour trip uh, could take you to a wilderness setting, even if it's just for the day, you know? Right. So that's, that's easy to do too. What is, um, so, you know, bears and then there has been some stuff in the news. I think, was it up at, I think it might've been Yellowstone, but there was like a, a bear death, you know, somebody died up there, but let's talk about that a little bit, because I think that's something I wanted to cover today is just, I mean, and in, in Greg, you mentioned it, you, you spent your time working with the, the parks. I mean, I'm sure, what does that look like? Like how, first of all, are you seeing bears? And then how do you stay safe if you're in the backcountry with the bears? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I live in the town of El Portel. There's a bear down there right now. And uh, it's somewhat habituated. It's gotten some trash, you know, mm -hmm. down in the forest, forest service, the dumpsters. Uh, you know, people are leaving trash and they're closed, actually the sites because they got flooded out this year but even in the park there's habituated bears um in the backcountry you know you're required to carry a bear canister and it's not only for your food it's also for all your scented items and uh you know, you know trash your toiletries you know things we don't think about often soap you know just these are the things that have a scent and um but yeah you know i want to give a shout out there's a few rangers who have been doing it for over 20 years uh like my friend um Ranger Rone, uh, it's not Rone, excuse me, um, Roni, 
she's been chasing bears in the valley and trying to get it's, it's really it's it's bear management is really just human management to tell you the truth and um you know every night you have five thousand people coming into yosemite valley whether they're staying at a campground whether they're staying at a hotel uh they come with food they come with toiletries they need to empty out their vehicles um and these are the rangers who are there every night a new group of people the same thing it kind of reminds me of groundhog day that movie um (laughs) but because of these rangers and because of the bear management um and because yosemite is more popular park i do believe they get more funding because of that simply alone uh, from places like the yosemite conservancy and stuff we don't see as many incidents as they used to i mean before the bear management teams in the late 90s i mean car damage vehicle damage everything i mean i'm talking millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of damage where actually congress actually stepped in and was like hey we need to do something because this is ridiculous and of course the bears pay the price they get euthanized you know or they just simply die um from eating our food tooth decay you know they get rotten teeth and bacteria there's all these things that we don't think about you know um you know they're chewing on car doors you know they're breaking their teeth and also they're getting hit by cars you know that's a big thing lately mm-hmm. is uh I just noticed a lot of people speeding and they have a program called Red Bear, Dead Bear, where they put a sign out where every year that's where a a bear was hit by a car. Whether it died or not, I don't know. But um, I had a client last year, my good uh, client, uh, Charles Allen. He called me up the next day. He's like, Greg, I I hit a bear going to Tuolumne and I wasn't really speeding, but it took off into the woods. You know, do you think I killed it? And unfortunately, I told him probably, you know, I mean, I can't imagine if you broke something that it's going to survive, but it's a big deal. Um, You know, I see people speeding, you know, um, you just got to take your time. It's a windy road. Uh, But food storage, you know, it's it's pretty serious. Um, You know, they get euthanized if they become habituated, if they start chasing people. There's never been a fatality in Yosemite. There's, in fact, to my knowledge... Uh, there's never been a fatality from a black bear. Okay, I'm not talking grizzly bear. They no longer oh, exist right. in the state. Okay, they used to be in the state. That's our California state. So there's no grizzlies anymore in California. There's uh-huh. not. And you know, it, it, people come here with a fear of bears. Like Greg said, there's never been a fa- fatality in Yosemite's history. So it's kind of an irrational fear. You know, you're better off playing whatever the Powerball or the lottery that's you know billions of dollars right now. That's not a fear. You're not actually allowed to carry bear spray here in Yosemite, but bear canisters are required, right? It's an important tool we use because the habituation with food is one of our biggest concerns. They're not going to eat you. That's never happened. You know, that's, that's not a concern here. I've been charged in Yellowstone by a grizzly. That's a whole different story. I've never been afraid of a Yosemite bear, right? Okay, because that is one of the misnomers you hear about. It probably depends on the area, but you always hear, okay, you've got grizzlies and you've got black bears. You know, grizzlies, if you get attacked, again, you're not going to get attacked. But if you did, you know, you pretty much just, you know, curl up in a ball and let the grizzly walk away. But they say black bears, you fight back because they're trying to eat you. Are you saying that's not really the case? You know, I mean, not in Yosemite, at least. I'm not going to say it's not happened because it has somewhere, right? But it's a lot of our our fear of wildlife in this country is kind of placates into Hollywood movies, right? Um, It's a lot more dangerous to hop into our vehicle. The number one way to kind of to, I think it's the number one way to die in Yosemite is from a vehicle accident. Probably. Yeah, it's it's up yeah. there. Or drownings on the river, right? You know, you've got greater concerns than the bears out there. But managing your food properly is probably the most important thing you can do to just not have any yeah. sort of issue. And distance. I, I am surprised that nobody's actually ever been seriously hurt. I have seen people like, uh, you know, with superficial wounds that have been swatted. Yeah. 
but it does it does surprise me, you know. But that's also because you have a dedicated every ranger in Yosemite. It doesn't matter what department they're in; they're all doing bear management. Uh, the most important person is probably the person, the trash truck driver, uh, removing the tra- trash every day. And then, of course, you have the wildlife staff, but then you have the campground rangers. They're all doing bear management, so it's a collective, um, you know, job. And it's really successful in Yosemite. Unfortunately, in some areas, it's not just usually because of the lack of the resources. You know, I was a backcountry ranger, um, and you know, I met people from all around the world. And you know, there were a couple of things in the backcountry I would let slide. Oftentimes, you might find people with the wrong permit. You know, I could maybe let that slide because, in, in the, you know, I knew there was space back there. And also, if they're 12 or 15 miles out, you're not going to really say, hey, you know, I'm walking you out. I, I do know rangers who have done that. It's crazy. But uh, one thing is, you know, if you don't have a bear canister, you were to walk out. You know, I didn't tell people twice, you know. Um, and that's because, you know, we have to keep. I mean, wilderness is wild, right? It's wildness. And we got to keep the life, uh, whether it's the bears or whatever calls home out there, we got to keep it wild. Um, you know, David and I are big, you know, uh, educators of leave no trace. You know, we talk about that in our trips, you know, like, hey, we're going to be walking along the river. Of course, we're doing some damage. You're always going to be having some type of impact, but let's limit that impact and we educate just like we do when we uh, teach somebody how to fly fish. You know, we're constantly educating them. So... Yeah, yeah, that's good. What is just describe that like pop a uh, proper food storage? So you have a canister, and there's probably you know there's different sizes, different types. Does that just mean you're putting everything, your garbage, or you, do you have multiple canisters? How are you? And then talk about that. Yeah, you know, two people go backpacking for three to four days. One one bear canister, you could probably get away with it. Um, I'm actually getting ready to do the John Muir Trail, and uh, my girlfriend and I are taking two bear canisters because we plan on almost three weeks. So, um, you know, just more volume, but all food, if they say in Yosemite, if it goes in your mouth or if it goes on your body, it goes in the canister. Uh, so all the food, all the toiletries, all your trash. What about going out of your body? Yeah. Human excrement, you know? Yeah. You know, people are using wipes and things. All that has an odor. Uh, even the excrement is technically supposed to go in there. Um, how I do it is I collect a lot of different bags from all the food items I eat. And I'm a, <laughs> and just I, I triple bag things. Now you can use a wag bag, uh, but Yosemite is pretty cool. Like you can actually bury the human waste. Okay, but you're oh, you remove the toilet paper. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's good. So like I'm getting ready for the Whitney area. I got to take it all out. And yeah, that all has to technically go in a barricade. So you pack it carefully. So when you ask like, how do you do that carefully? You know, uh, but you triple bag it. Um, you actually get wag bags, you know, for that trip. Uh, they even issue them to you at the different wilderness locations where you uh, get your permit. But, yeah, you just store everything. Now, during the day when you're with your food, like, I'll leave things out of the bear canister. I don't always have to get in and out of my bear canister. You know, I'll leave my lunch at the top. It's in your on your back. Yeah, but the thing that you can't do, and I saw that quite a few times as a ranger. In fact, a good good ranger back in the day, a good friend of mine named Matt, very gregorious guy a uh, great guy he just got married after david gregory here this this uh spring but um you know he uh he would find like scout groups for instance or larger groups whatever they might be i don't mean to pick on the scouts but they kind of have a reputation for not always being the most uh food <laughs> savvy if you know what i mean but um he would like just sit on the packs because they would go off and do like a day hike or something or go check out the view and they would leave their packs but the bear canisters were in there 
they're not odor proof. And so he would just lay on the pack because one of the issues is, you know, a barrel will just come and rip your pack of shreds. And um, believe it or not, a few years ago, this was kind of interesting. There was a bear. Uh, I've been told this bear has got old and has died. But there was an area closed because this bear understood bear canisters that could roll them off a cliff and they break. You know, they're designed to kind <laughs> the of like famous bear in Yosemite yeah. near That's awesome. That, but um, you know, they're designed for the bear to kind of roll around and kind of hit and blah blah blah. But it's when they're tossing them off like a hundred foot cliff, they break. They break, and they actually closed the whole area. And rangers went up there, like Ryan Leahy and all these rangers uh, who used to do bear management, and they went up there and they make sure the people weren't camping in that area. They would make sure that the bear just had no opportunities for food and it worked. Uh, but now that area is open again, because I guess that bear is just has lived its life. And um, they're, they're incredibly intelligent animals. And unfortunately, sometimes that intelligence leads to them getting euthanized because they outsmart, outsmart humans. There's a significant overlap between, you know, the dumbest of humans and the smartest of bears. Right. So they have to, have to, you know, you got to design something that kind of works for both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the bears that's the thing the thing they, they're it's i'm not sure the evolutionary you know looking at that but when you look at a skeleton of a bear you know it looks eerily like a weird scrunched up human yeah you know it's like it, it's kind of weird but so yeah they're smart animals and they're they smart enough to figure this out yeah and you know there's there's only four to five hundred in all of yosemite so i get people all the time that are like are we gonna see a bear today i go if we're lucky right you know you have four million visitors and 400 bears you do the math Right. I, you know, I, I even got a call a couple weeks ago. Hey, can I sign up for one of your bear tours? And I'm like, bear tour, <laughs> you know, like, right. Okay. How is this like one of those? How do I explain this? Well, ma'am, you know? Yeah. 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 If you right. see a bear, you know, Yellowstone's the park, they call it the Serengeti of North America. You know, Yellowstone is known for the Buffalo jams and you know, seeing the wolves and the moose and the elk and all that, you know, Yosemite, you're going to see squirrels, you're going to see deer, but like if you see a bear, it's uh, a you're, good you're, day. It's a good day. You know, saying that last year I was on the Merced and um, I was working right behind my client and I, I turn around and there's a bear crossing the river, like probably 30 feet behind us and uh, got a photo of it. It was pretty cool. But I just took it, I tapped him on the shoulder, said, Hey, just one moment, take, take a look behind and just minding its own business, just crossing the river. It was great. Like I had a couple years ago, I had, I was fishing this Abbey Lane spot that Greg knows pretty well. And I'm fishing with clients. We go to, st you know, step out of our vehicles. My client almost steps in a giant pair of steaming bear dung, you know, and, and I go, okay, well, they're, they're down here eating grapes right now. There's a decent chance we see one. And sure enough, we start fishing that hole. We catch a few fish and this bear goes down to swim in the same hole we're fishing. You know, it jumps in like a dog. It shakes off. And it was a juvenile bear, right? So it's still kind of playful. And this thing literally sat on the bank next to us, picked up a stone, and started playing with a rock in its lap. And at that point, I was like, okay, guys, stop fishing. Like, this is one of the coolest things you guys are going to see. Like, there's no, like, you're focusing on the wrong thing right now. I've never seen this before. So, yeah, we're pretty fortunate. I've, I've had them walk across logs behind me. You know, it's, it's always kind of a treat when we get to see bears here in the park. Mm, that is cool. Well, let's, uh, you know, so fishing, you mentioned this a little bit, and we're going to talk on this a bit, but what, what are the, the species that you guys, like, if somebody's coming in for a trip, where are you hitting multiple species out there? Talk about that a little bit and, and the sort of techniques you're using. We can. So there's, there's 
five different species here in the park. The native species is the rainbow. We actually found some populations uh, that have steelhead genetics with NOAA a few years ago as a part of that study. Um, but rainbows are the native species. We also have golden trout, which are, you know, our state fish native to the Sierras. That one you typically need to access by putting a little extra effort into the high country. There's only one spot I know of that you can get to on a day trip. We have cutthroat, which there are very few populations of in the park. Um, but that's kind of a special thing to go chase. Um, we have tons of brook trout, right? East Coast brook trout. They kind of taken over a lot of these lakes. And then we have browns, right? The the, the Lock Levin, I believe, was the first trout that was first, uh, you know, non-native trout that was brought here about the turn of the century. And then I think we had the German brown that was brought in a few years later. Yeah. But there's there's all these neat little pockets in the park of of historical stocking that happened over a hundred years ago. So really, that that does an incredible job of protecting genetic diversity. So there's like one spot in particular kind of sticks out to mind, which is one of my favorite High Sierra camps, which is kind of a user-friendly you know spot for people to visit on one of their first backcountry trips called Vogelsang. And you have the opportunity to catch you know, every single one of those species on a backcountry trip. Wow. And what, how do you spell it? Volga? Volga? Vogelsang, yep. V-O-G-E-L-S-A-N-G. Vogelsang. Okay, perfect. So if somebody, and it sounds like you guys typically get a lot of, you know, people new to fishing, things like that. But what if somebody called up and they said, hey, we want to, we're going to be there. We want to do some fishing. What, what do you tell them? Do you, um, is a day trip the easiest place to start or do you guys do a little bit of everything? We do a little bit of everything. You know, I honestly prefer to go out with people on backpacking trips that I've met before and that are repeat clientele. You know, I've kind of learned the hard way that some people may not be as physically capable as they they want to tell you. So, you know, I, I kind of like to start with a day trip. And then if we develop a relationship, A, I want to spend three to five days with you and B, you're physically capable of doing so, then we, you know, then we can kind of explore some of these farther reaching areas of the park. Yep. That makes sense. So you could start with a day trip. So somebody come up and say, okay, we're doing a day trip. Let's, uh, we're going to be out there. What is that? So walk us through a day trip. What, what sort of gear are they, are we talking dry flies and, and what would be the best time? Is there a good shoulder season or what's that look like? For beginners, I generally recommend a half day trip, right? It's their first time touching a fly rod. So we want to teach you some basics without overwhelming you without, you know, we do a lot of kids trips. We do this thing called a fishy kids program. We give you a discount on a half day trip to encourage kids to get involved in the sport of fly fishing. And, uh, you know, what, especially with kids, it's a short attention span. So we want to, we want to get you out get them engaged, hopefully make them fall in love with the sport of fly fishing and then kind of set them on, you know, set them on to their, you know, to hopefully pursue the sport, right? Um, people that are a little bit more experienced, maybe they've gone a few times or, you know, it's not like we don't get experienced anglers that just need to be showed the ropes or like what here, what's here locally. Um, you know, our full day trips where we can potentially hike into a high country lake or, um, you know, we can explore some of these more far off destinations. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. so there would be, so I think I, I imagine, like I said, if we were coming in there, we could come in and say, we're going to do a multi-day. Do you guys do multi-day trips? Is that something? We do. You know, we, we do. Yeah. It's, there's a little bit of vetting on the phone. One of my favorite parts of the job is kind of trying to intuitively recognize what people want out of it. Yeah. Let, let's walk through that. Do you want to do a little role playing? Let's, let's see how, yeah, you know, I mean, if, if you, if you want to role play, I can take another sip of my drink and we can role play. 
Yeah, <laughs> let's let's do it. So we're uh, so walk me through. So I'm somebody calling, and I'm, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to Yosemite. I've got. Um, you know, I got the kids, maybe, maybe, well, I guess that's a whole other thing. You got the kids in there and stuff, but maybe it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe I mean, after, hanging out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. after figuring out like the family, the ages, you know, and all that, you know, um, I've always wanted to set people up for success, you know, and if we can't do that, like, I mean, this spring, the water was so high that David and I were canceling trips. Some people were wanting to go hiking instead, but, um, you know, fishing was just tough, especially for beginners and some areas just downright unsafe. Yeah, um, you want to set people up with honest expectations. I used to work for a different outfitter, and that was never a part of the ball game. So, like one of my favorite things about working for myself is saying, "Hey, this is this is what we're presented with." You know, I, I make a living out of expectation management, so it's like, "Hey, this," you know, water's the highest it's been in seventy years. Like it's your first time, you probably shouldn't go fly fishing. Like, let's go on a hike. Let's show you some, you know, some hikes that are off the beaten path. Or even like this year, I was encouraging people because fly fishing wasn't the star of the show at the beginning of the season. You say, hey, let's go, let's go on this incredible historical hike, and then we can go fish for a couple hours to catch a couple small rainbows or browns, and then just try to salvage the day because that's what you were looking to do in the first place. I think it start, starts with honest expectations. We supply all the gear. The only people, the only thing people need to show up with is a good attitude and a fishing license. Yeah, I mean, I want to set them up for. I always tell my groups, you know, and I get probably ninety percent beginners here. You know, I tell them I have two uh, goals today. One is to set you up uh, for success. You know, where you can independently move. You know how to read the water. You get enough casting. You know to get it in there. I'm talking 15 to 20 foot cast. Short line techniques. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I think any, especially here on the Western slopes, like if you are a solid roll caster, 15, 20, even 40 feet, which oftentimes you don't have to go that far, uh, you will be successful. If, you, or if you're a decent overhand caster with just a 20, 30 foot cast, you will be successful. There's no reason for 80 foot. You know, I see, sometimes I see these guys, they're, they're telling me I have a lot of experience. And they're ripping off the, end, the entire line, you know. I'm like, oh, gosh, they're five feet in front of you, you know. They're not 95 feet, you know. You know, um, one of the guides up on the dish shoots, this guy, Travis, he has a great line. He's, he says, you know, I'll know if my clients are hopers or hunters within the first few minutes. And I tell that to my clients. I stole that from Travis, you know. And, um, and you know, and I, I try to teach them that, you know, when we're fishing, we are hunting. We're, they're wild fish that we're going to release, and we want to release them is uh you know is healthy as you can you haven't you haven't stocked the park since 1991 these are all self-sustaining populations of fish which yeah. is another added bonus of being here yeah and then you know set enough for success where they can independently fish and then my other goal is to you know give them enough experience where they could go somewhere on their own uh whether it's a local place near them or a, a vacation where they can actually do it you know um I tell people, I was in your shoes years ago. I'm used to catching trees. Uh, I tell people, you know, you fish four times a year, you're exactly where you should be. That's what I expect. You know, but I try to do a lot of dry fly fishing. Um, right now, it's turning on. I'm, I'm skating my dry flies, big stimulators. I'll just skate them down the ripples and you're just get, you're going to get tagged. Oh, wow. Uh, it's amazing. You know, but a lot of traditional dry fly upstream presentation, learning the men's, simple men's, high sticking, you know, down men or upstream men. Can I, um, 
step back into role play for a second. So you you're calling me. Maybe maybe you don't even know when you're going to come visit, right? You're you're like the dream client. This is flexible, right? We're going to allow the guide to kind of set you up for success, right? Yeah, exactly. Tell us when to come there. Yeah. So so June and July arguably the most reliable months to come here as a beginner. It's very hard outside of this year, which was the anomaly. It was like the outlier of all outliers, right? Mammoth Mountain is still open for skiing. They just announced that they're going to be open 100 days from now for skiing, right? They have over 700 inches of snow this year. This isn't, this isn't a normal year. I kept telling people that on the phone, right? But on a normal year, you call me in the winter and we're like, kind of, hopefully we're above 100% average annual. And you go, so, so when should I show up? You should show up in... Maybe, maybe June, depending on the winter, but June or July, you really can't go wrong. A lot of times, a lot of times in August, the water temps get too warm. You know, you want to fish the Merced in August, you're already reaching 70 degrees. We really try to never fish a river when it's over 68. We're going to send you into the high country. We're going to hike into the high country lake. We're going to go the Tuolumne. But in fact, the last three years, the Tuolumne up at about 8,000 feet has reached 70 degrees in August every season. So like this year, even though it may not have been the best for business for Greg and I, it's all of our systems are so incredibly healthy. Fish are fat and happy and, you know, we're happy. So, yeah just looking at the rivers themselves, you know, so the Merced, I mean, you've got some pretty names that we've heard before, right? And is it kind of, you know, you start down low, so June, July, but, and then, so basically April, May, there's just too much snow, no access. Is that kind of what happens? And then the same thing on the other end? You know, there's always places you can go, you know, is it going to be tight casting and trees? That's kind of frustrating. Is it going to be one of these smaller tributaries or creeks? I just want to be honest with people to say, hey, this is not optimal conditions. Like we're talking optimal conditions here, right? In April and May, sometimes I'll do floats down on the lower rivers. That can be an incredible time to go do a float on the lower river. That can be an incredible time to fish the Merced, right? The Tuolumne is never going to be open in the high country by then. We're blessed here in California. Greg and I wear wading socks the majority of the year. Like we have beautiful weather. We have a year-round fishery. Um, there's very few months that you can't fish at all, but this year was the exception to the rule. Mm, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's the thing. So yeah. depending, yeah, if you got lots of different territories, small, medium, big size rivers you can fish. So, so if somebody's yeah. coming there, no matter what, there's going to be some fishing to, to be had no matter when. Yeah. There ought to be. And if there's not, we'll let you know. Yeah. Okay, good. So, well, let's just go back to that July, June, July. So June, July, the techniques, it sounds like dry fly fishing. Talk about that a little bit. Like what flies, if you're going to be doing this on your own, what sort of flies would you be bringing there? So, you know, some of my favorite flies, if I had to pick one fly for year round, we have a pretty reliable caddis hatch on most of our rivers, just a low rider CDC caddis. And then I think like one of my other go-tos is an emerging crippled caddis in conditions. I think that may have been tied by Ralph Cutter originally. Ants for the high country. I mean, you hear that repetitively. They're hard to see, but they crush it. Um, I've been fishing a lot of like raindrop pertagons lately. Um, and then my biggest fish last year was on a Rio's Pearl Jam. Um, so far this year, you know, if, if it is high water, like we've experienced a lot of this year, like, you know, if you're okay with fishing a San Juan worm, it works, right? Like the yeah. most of our meadows were flooded in Yosemite for a majority of this year. There was like roving brown trout marauders that like my biggest brown trout this year literally had worms spilling out of its gills. 
So like, you know, if it's high water, you can get away with fishing something a little bit more gaudy or one of those kind of basic patterns like a San Juan. Um, What's one of your go-tos, Greg? Gosh, you know, I'm on the blog, the Oregon Fly Fishing blog, uh, Dave. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've actually done this for this year and stuff uh, for Chris Daughters. Uh, You know, I tell people, keep it simple. I see a lot of people, um, if they come up here, they suffer from, these are people with experience. They suffer from fly phobia. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I look at their box and they have a beautiful box. I'm talking like probably about 100 different patterns though too. And I try to keep it really simple. If I had to choose only the three flies that I would use probably almost 95% of the time, it's going to be a parachute atoms. It's going to be an elk hair caddis and it's going to be a stimulator. Okay. Maybe I'll use different sizes um, or variations. Like that's funny, David, you mentioned Rio. Uh, George Cook, he hooked me up with a, a, um, a fly one time that I actually buy now from Rio. I tie most of my flies except for two that I buy from Rio. And one's the split flag Adams. It's a, um, it's a great fly. That thing crushes it. But, um, you know, Smaller flies here in the Sierra and the dry flies, you want like 14s are as about as big as I go. Unless you're using a stimulator, I use a size 10 on a Tiemco 200, you know. Uh, same with my CD, with my uh, Elk Caddis, CDC Elk Caddis, uh, size 14, 16s as well. Um, if you're going to do pale morning duns, those are even blue wing olives. Those are super productive. Yeah, earlier summer, later summer, fall. Size 16s, if you can throw them in 18s, go for it. Uh, you don't necessarily need to see it on the river here. Just wait for that commotion and wait for that little that little bump. Um, as far as nymphs, you can't go wrong with a Blackstone, a Kaufman Blackstone, you know, size uh, 10. Prince nymphs, Hare's Ears, Copper Johns, all of those work great. You know, uh, I've been using a lot of Lance Egan's flies lately, or I should say over the last few years. Like, I think he has the red dart. I think that's his. Or not, or it might be Devin Olson. Both of those guys, you know, I mean, they're flies. You know, it's like it's like Mike Mercer, you know, the missing link. Anything with those guys' names, you even mentioned, like, you know, I gave you John Barr. David said um, um, he was talking about Cutter. Like, anything with those guys' names. And, is, is and it's, awesome. it's the Sierras, right? They hardly see people. A lot of the areas in the Sierras, is, if you're willing to put in the effort, they hardly see people. So it's like, you know, we can beat it beat a dead horse but i mean it's presentation over fly selection it's not the henry's fork 100 it's not the henry's fork bear vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable epic and safe bear vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food this in turn keeps your food safe keeps the bears safe and keeps you safe I've got a classic story that I told. I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. I had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. And when I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewall so you can find your stuff really easy. 
and a large opening plus plus it doubles as a nice camp stool this thing is legit it definitely is one of my this might be my favorite feature is is the camp stool you know i love a good a good chair out there check in with the crew at bear vault at wetflyswing.com slash bear vault that's bear vault b-e-a-r-v-a-u-l-t okay back to the show how do you guys get so that you mentioned the species and I do want to cover the Euro because I think that's always an interesting topic. Um, but how do you get, you know, I've seen some, there's some bigger Browns, you know, there's different sizes. How do you find, say, if you wanted to find some of those bigger Browns, are those all mostly in the, the bigger main stem down river at lower parts of the river? First off, I want to know what you want out of the day. Is it scenery? Is it quality? Is it quantity? The ability for a client to tell their guide what they want out of a day, it takes a lot of guesswork out of our job. So, if you're saying, I want to fish bigger browns, I'm going to tell you to come early season, right? And I may make you pay me before I give you that answer. You know, especially in places like Yosemite that receive a lot of visitation. Yeah, it doesn't receive the kind of fishing pressure that we'd expect with 4 million people. But do I want to announce where the biggest browns are in the park? I'll tell you one, for example, it's Hetch Hetchy. Hetch Hetchy has some of our biggest browns in the park. Park Service actually officially changed their regs on their website, whether it's legal or not, I don't think it is, to where you're not allowed to fish Hetch Hetchy for the first time this year, ever. Um, and I can I can kind of dive into that. That might take a while because I, I work with an environmental organization called Restore Chechi. Our ultimate purpose is to restore the, you know, restore Hetch Hetchy Valley. If people don't know, it was the perfect exact counterpart to Yosemite Valley. Here, it's the only time in our national parks history we ever flooded and dammed a river in a national park. It created so much public outrage at the time. There was over 200 newspaper editorials. We created the National Park Services Act. Like a lot of bad things in this country, sometimes good things can come out of it. And preservation right. for future generations was part of it. So like that, that is one of my favorite places to target Big Browns. It's not user-friendly. Who knows if those regulations are changing soon? If they do, um, it would be pretty unfortunate. But that's one of the places you can find big browns. In any slow meandering water ambush structure, right? Browns are the assholes of the river. They're going to inhabit the structure. They're going to ambush prey. You know, the smaller browns you'll catch in the, the gorge section or these riffle sections. Um, yeah, go you, you got to put your time in. You put your time I, in. I mean, the thing is, like, for these big browns, you, you got you to cover a lot of water. And oftentimes, like David said, in the earlier summer, you know, when they're more active and you could get them to come up to a dry. I've had it. Uh, David was there last year. It came up to a purple haze. It actually turned. We saw the whole thing in crystal clear water. It was amazing. But, you know, honestly, we're probably getting them more with nymphs. Um, you know, whether you're throwing an indicator or euro nymphing or even a dropper, uh, you're more likely to get them with a nymph just because you're putting it closer to them. But it's almost like you got to put a lot of walking in. And David is so good at finding browns that he'll just walk along the bank and he'll, you don't, he'll spot them. You don't fish until you see it. It's kind of yeah. New Zealand style, right? Yeah. I want you to cover a couple miles throughout the day. And I want you to just walk until you see something. It's not worth your time to prospect cast. You want to literally key into a fish. And a lot of these fish are so used to visitors. You'll have rafts pass over by. You'll have, you know, the people drinking booze as they're you know traveling down their inner tubes or kids splashing and throwing rocks i mean this is something we deal with as you're targeting a five pound brown right and dave you'd be amazed i've seen david <laughs> i've seen him catch five pound browns i kid you not if, if i 
ever showed anybody the photo, he'd kill me. But d- you but don't. You, it, 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 with a like with a group of like tour tourists there, you know, picnicking all this. Right. With, their, with everything he's saying, like skipping stuff. You don't. If the fish, like wow, those fish were never on alert. They were just like they're habituated. <laughs> if you if you don't move that fish, if you don't get it to exhibit some sort of erratic behavior, if you get it to stay in its holding lie, you still have a chance. So if you spend an hour changing flies, changing depth, changing your weights, whatever you got to do, be repetitive. You know, it's change, change, like repetition, precision. Sometimes those big browns won't move a foot from where they're feeding. So you have to literally knock them, knock them on the nose. Wow. With a nymph. Yeah. If, you, if I, with a nymph, I mean, you can tease them up with a streamer, especially with high water or out of structure late at night. But if I could kind of circle back on Hetch Hetchy, because that's something that I, you know, I, I grew up spending a lot of time in El Portel, which is this little park service community where Greg lives. And I, I would always look at this black and white photo on my friend's wall. And it just looks like an absolute fly fishing paradise. I mean, it's one of the great environmental travesties in this country that we flooded it in the first place. The organization Restore Hetchy, their mission is to restore Hetch Hetchy Valley without losing San Francisco a drop of their water. And one of the main things that that's going to require is them to actually filter it because as it exists now, they get, you know, a pipeline of water from Hetch Hetchy that they don't have to filter. But every major metropolitan area in the world filters their water for the most part. Um, guess if you could, I, I kind of got a little question for you. If you could guess how much San Francisco pays for their water rates for Hetch Hetchy, how much would you, how much would you guess? Oh, their water rights, like actually to take how much and how much water they take out of it. Yeah, to, to take, you know, here they generate millions off the sale of water and off of, you know. I'll bet you it's a lot lower than you. I'd expect it to be, you know, millions and tens of millions, you know, but it's probably a super yeah. low number because it's probably grandfathered in or something like that. $30,000 a year. Here you have a valley comparable to Yosemite that can generate what is, by independent studies, billions of dollars for the local economy and for this country and they pay thirty thousand dollars a year most most people when you ask in san francisco and at one point i dressed up in a bear costume and asked people in san francisco where their water comes from they don't know they think it's all hetch hetchy you look at a billboard and it says hetch hetchy water it's like this coveted valued thing even though it's just simply one it's it's one of nine reservoirs it's a small fraction of their water, right? If, if you remove the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir from the system, that water's going to get trapped downstream. You're just going to have to filter it. And it's there's a couple things I want to mention really quick. If we actually accomplish this in my lifetime, which is a, a little dream of mine, it would be the greatest environmental restoration possibly the world's ever seen. It would generate a lot of publicity. You'd have a whole other Yosemite Valley. Mm. Here this year, we're just inundated with tourists to the point where it's it's overwhelming for a lot of visitors. It takes away from the visitor experience. Not only would you increase recreational opportunities over there and not only generate economic value in the in the billions, but you'd alleviate congestion in Yosemite Valley and remove pressure from Yosemite Valley. This is like... Yeah, describe this to somebody who hasn't doesn't know about, and I haven't heard about Hetchetchi, Roy, but is this a just like a massive dam that's there that could be removed and, and create a free-flowing stream? Is that kind of what we're looking at here, like kind of like the Klamath Lake stuff? 
to quote John Muir, because we are talking about Yosemite, right? It was a wonderful exact counterpart of the great Yosemite Valley. It's one of the most spectacular landscapes on earth. And it was protected for a reason and remains one of our greatest mistakes. Some people say Hetchetchi's why he died, right? He fought tooth and nail, created the Sierra Club to try to fight for this. This is one of the first great environmental battles of our country, right? And I, and I firmly believe like public lands, protecting national parks, protecting national monuments, you know, protecting bird sanctuaries. This is one of our best ideas, right? As, as fly fishermen, we live and breathe public lands, right? We breathe public access. Here we had this, one of the greatest valleys of the world. John Muir said it was one of the four great valleys of the world that we flooded for San Francisco's water supply. And the history of it is there was an earthquake in 1906. It destroyed, with the fire that got started, it destroyed about a quarter of the city. So San Francisco in California, which is here the fifth largest economy in the world, it, there's a, there was a lot of money and power at the time that was there. They beat on the drum to say, we didn't have enough water, but it was the infrastructure that wasn't available. So you ended up you know, doing a rallying cry to where they ended up passing legislation with the Raker Act uh, in 1913 to dam a national park, okay? Now, that, that, that's private water. I'm not allowed to swim in it. Apparently, now I'm not allowed to fish in it. Yeah, I don't understand that one. I don't understand. You're not touching it. You can net the fish. You're I mean, not I'm, allowed to fish below. You're not allowed right? to camp in it. I get it. Well, hold on, Dave. Like, David, like, we were with the park, uh, and he's a great guy, this guy, Rob, who works. He's the fish biologist. Like, you're not allowed to fish it below the high water line? I don't know. I mean, I want to ask and him because he's a great guy. He's running a lot of wonderful projects here in the park. Yeah. But I want to ask, like, is this is this rule going to go into law? Is this something we have to follow? Because I grew up fishing this reservoir, and it's a trophy brown fishery. I mean, that's some of the highest density of bears mm -hmm. in the park. This would be an opportunity to truly do things the right way. A lot of people come to Yosemite and go, oh, this congestion, or oh, it's a city, or oh, it was poor planning. I mean, it was developed mm -hmm. around the automobile. If we restored Hetch Hetchy Valley, which would happen really easily because there's seed banks at the bottom of the reservoir, there's not a lot of sediment like normal reservoirs. You know, the water rink would fade in 50 or 100 years. I can't remember. It would be... And I don't even want to remove the dam. I would just love to see it left as a testament of this bad decision that we made in our country's history. But you just simply drain the reservoir, let it return to life. I mean, it would it would draw in visitation from all over the world. Scientists, students would come out and be able to visit this. Hmm. So you don't even have to remove that. You're not even saying that you do this without removing the dam. Yeah, it's it would be. I mean, it's an impressive structure. The O'Shaughnessy Dam in a feat of engineering is impressive, but whether it's been federal studies on both, both sides of the aisle, um, there's been bipartisan support throughout the years to restore this. Um, San Francisco never wants to talk or hear about it, but it would be an incredible opportunity, I think, for California and for Yosemite. You know, the, the National Park Service Act got passed because of this right? This was one of the main drivers. So we have preservation for future generations. I mean, this is such, most people haven't heard of it, but it's such an important part of our, of our history in the National Park Service, of our history in this country. Wow. And you said the group, what is the group we could look up if... Uh, the group is Restore Hetch Hetchy. Their website's hetchhetchy.org. I encourage you to get involved. There's so many other solutions here where San Francisco can maintain its water supply. Like I said, 20% energy loss, 
you're not losing a drop of water. They're just going to have to filter it. I think San Francisco can afford that. Um, it's going to generate billions of dollars, and it's going to be one of the most beneficial things we can do for the park. If people want to get more involved, please look it up. There's a couple of environmental organizations I want to plug later on, but this is something that's a little bit close to my heart, and I appreciate you guys listening to for a second. Yeah. Last thing, what would you think if people flooded Yosemite Valley? Right. Yeah, that would be a crazy, that, there's no way that would happen. That's, uh, no way it would happen. Well, it happened, no. right? And and now... And how did it How did it happen? Just going back there. So was that just, um, I mean, it sounds like it's privately owned. So it's not It's not part of the national parks, or it is part of the it's national It's in park. the national park. This is the only time that this has been done in a national park. It's a part of the national park. You're allowed to camp high hike there, used to be allowed to fish there. I mean, you're not allowed to camp close to the reservoir, but you can camp up at Rancheria, or if you've got a wilderness permit, camp before you hike out of there. It's it's really one of the densest populations of bears we have. Um, they actually relocate some of our problem bears in that area. I did a trip years ago. It's kind of become an annual trip, but I did a trip years ago with my friend Bernard down, um, pretty active down in Southern California in Caltrout but we would hike to the inlet of Hetch Hetchy. And you go through that corridor, there was a trip where we saw nine bears, mother and cubs. I mean, I practically stepped on one. There was like a section where I'm traversing a ledge because Bernard and Rebecca decide to hike through Poison Oak through this dense area. And you pretty much follow bear trails. It's like not, it's for an experienced hiker. I would not recommend people to go down there. But by the time you make it to the inlet, there's one of the most beautiful fields of driftwood you've ever seen i'm talking multiple football fields and then it just opens up into one of the great valleys of the world so you know that that is a place that like i said i don't recommend you know your average person going but it has trophy brown trout and it's incredible and whether you allow like one of the things restore is really fighting for as of recent is just increased recreational opportunities that raker act in 1913 promised increased recreational opportunities they handed out the framer report to congressmen and there was 50 pages of this is going to be the recreational opportunities that are going to exist here right the you're, you're going to have this, that, and the other, and more campgrounds, and potentially this trail and that, and none of it came to fruition. It's guarded. I can't swim in it. I can swim upstream, which I don't get, but I can't swim in it. Apparently, now I'm not allowed to fish in it. I can't do non-motorized boating in it. I mean, this is this is our national park. Hmm. What river is it? What river is the it? Tuolumne. Um, the Tuolumne. The Tuolumne. So the Tuolumne. Yeah. And was, where is the Tuolumne? Where, what does that flow into eventually? So all of our drainages that Greg and I fish end up flowing into the San Joaquin, which is California's second largest watershed. This is one of the most modified agricultural environments of the world. Oh, right. You, yeah, yeah. you, you know, the Sacramento, we all know about, right? It still has existing salmon and steelhead to a degree that's, you know, impressive for your normal Californian now. But what existed in the past was millions of fish. You could boat to Fresno. You could travel up the river. Um, the, the San Joaquin oftentimes in the middle of summer, there's not a single drop of water that reaches the Merced. Right. That, that's what I was getting at. I was getting to the thing you mentioned at the Merced that the fact that some of those rainbow have steelhead genetics. I mean, yeah. that's what this was. If you, if you go back, whatever, 500 years, you're going to see steelhead and s salmon that are migrating up this system. Yeah. As far as Yosemite Valley, they were I mean, saying. shit in the fifties, right? Like this is not all that long ago. Oh, right. Not even that long ago. Right, right, right. But we've, we've modified that environment so much for agriculture. And don't get me wrong, it's important, right? Like 
about 50% of our produce in this country comes from the Central Valley. People don't realize how important that agricultural zone is, but we're still planting more almonds. We're still planting more in water-intensive crops, and we've destroyed these salmon runs. We've destroyed these seal steelhead runs. Um, salmon used to come as far as El Portel. Yeah, and, and hopefully they will again soon. We're actually... Uh, I'm a part of the board of directors for our local uh, California Trout Unlimited chapter, which that's another organization I would love people to become a part of. They've got from meadow restoration to steelhead restoration. I mean, there's so many advantageous things to get involved with with Trout Unlimited. Um, our local chapter is working on a couple projects right now. One is a crawfish removal program in Yosemite. They're a non-native species. So if you want to get involved with that, please reach out and let me know. Outside of that, uh, NOAA is showing interest. They've restored some, some salmon runs on the San Joaquin, which is a really amazing thing, especially for spring run salmon. And there's the potential to start moving steelhead and salmon upriver to their historical zones, whether it be Wawona or El Portel or farther up on the Merced River. So if that's something people want to get involved in, um, I dream about the opportunity to just see some of those fish spawn in their historical zones. And it's a, it's a prime area because so much of this is public land. Like we have a, a, a classic trout stream. It's freestone granite. It's wild and scenic. There's not development, you know, most of it exists in public lands. It's from a really clean zone that originates in the national park. I mean, this could be something really good for the state perfect. of California and for fishermen as a whole. That's perfect. Gosh, that's, that's yeah. great. So sorry, I'm getting excited. No, loving it. This is great. I think I'm glad you touched on this because yeah. I wanted to talk about kind of responsibility and, you know, respect, right. As you're, as an angler, cause a lot of people come here, they don't know probably, you know, I mean, wh what do you tell somebody when you say being a responsible angler, if they're out there fishing, what, what does that entail? Do, have we talked about everything today? Is that food storage or the other things? I mean, food storage is one of the more important things you can do when you, you go into the back country simply to protect, you know, protect bears, right beyond anything else. But as being a responsible angler, that's something we've had such a huge wave. I think it was like 55 million people getting involved in rivers and, and being outdoors during that COVID era. We've had the largest growth in our sport in the last few years than we've had in a long, long time. So what I want to kind of encourage all the people that are listening, you know, we oftentimes get protective of our quote unquote spots, right? You see new people on the river, maybe they're not using it appropriately. Maybe they're blowing it up at the wrong time of day or year. Like instead of getting angry at those people, if I could encourage your listeners to just take the time to take them under their wing, like a little bit of kindness, a little bit of generosity goes a far way. Like teaching your your son's friend how to fly fish could could change their life in a positive way, whether it's mental health, whether it's getting outdoors, whether it's, you know, developing appreciation for rivers and protecting rivers in our future as this country, that's not a bad thing. But like, pick up trash, lead by example, take somebody under your wing. If they're not, if they're squeezing the out of a fish when they hold them, like show them the right way to do it. Keep them wet, right? Like don't squeeze their internal organs. Don't touch their gill plates. Like there's so many things. Hold your breath as long as you take the fish out of the water, right? There's tonic right. immobility, which I, I see good. all the time. People laugh when it's like fish tickling, right? But I'll show my clients how to properly tickle fish or how to like lift it on its backside to take the hook out. How do you do that? How do you properly tickle the fish? 
<laughs> this is yeah, getting, how do you do that, David? This is getting towards my nickname here in Yosemite, which I don't think I should share publicly. The but fish, the fish tickler, is that? <laughs> I mean, it's not the fish ticker; it's the fish expletive. But you know, oh, if right, you right, slide right. your gotcha. hand in the back portion of the fish and you rub it appropriately, going up towards its gill plate, they'll kind of go into this immobilized state. I mean, this is this is an ancient Native American way of fishing. So, rubbing them on their back or on their belly? Rubbing them on their belly. Rubbing up on, on the their belly, belly yeah, yeah. towards their gill plate. I feel like I need to crack another beer as we're talking right. about this. But um, <laughs> so no. tickling is a real thing. Look it up. I swear it works. Yeah. Fish tickling. Also, All you right. know, tom- tonic immobility is kind of famous in sharks, right? But I, I truly believe from from just experience that if you handle a fish upside down they lose their balance. You know, they go into this immobilized state. So, so often I see people just squeeze the out of fish. And then that's when, like, that's such a teaching opportunity to just come in and say, Hey, like we're practicing catch and release. We're using Barbara cooks. We're doing this with intention. Like, yeah. Do you guys do nets? Do you guys use nets out there? You know, I, I'm I'm 50, 50. If, if I'm targeting huge fish, it's a good thing to bring in it. But also at the same time, I prefer handling trout and keeping them in the water. I, I, I use that little fish removal tool. You know, yeah, he he, wine oh, cork right, yeah. he builds a wine cork thing with a yeah, coat I mean, hanger. When we're catching like eight to ten inch like brookies all day or browns, you know, it works great. You're never touching it. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to to go to Clearwater Guide School and Gino and Andrew, a little shout out to Confluence Outfitters. Um, okay. I had this I was this kind of wide eyed kid wearing a, a leather fly fishing vest and like climbing trees and not really knowing what I was doing, but I was super excited about it. And they, they handle a lot of their fish by hand. Like, I think if you do that correctly, that may be the best way. I don't know. A net can be good as well, but really we're trying to minimize our impact, right? We're trying to spread the doctrine of catch and release. At least we are. Um, Yeah. I think like good ethics, you know, I tell people about fish handling uh, you know, Catherine Hart really ins- installed that in me, you know, uh, you know, at Rage F Sports when I was working there. Uh, I'm not sure if they still do it or not, but they had, you know, fish need water, which is basically something like uh, keep them wet. Uh, but I talk about pinch barbs, you know, or just barbless hooks, um, which I truly, if you're catching and releasing, absolutely, 100%, you should never use a barb. Um, occasionally people want to keep a fish, you know, for a backpacking dinner. That's okay. But, you know, about temperatures, you know, David and I carry uh, thermometers. We talk about, you know, when water temperatures start getting into the high sixties, uh, how we have to move, um, you know, all about just releasing these fish as healthy as we can. Uh, um, my girlfriend always kind of laughs, like she likes fishing, doesn't love fishing, but like, Oh, the hook in the mouth always kind of that must hurt. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if right. we are fishing, I mean, we are, I mean, we are split lips, you know, I mean, yeah, uh, it can't be fun, you know, but if we can return them healthy, um, as best we can, because, you know, now we're being, I'm being biased, you know, I, I like fishing, you know, you, you got to teach them these skills. And, and, and if you can start early, uh, the better, you know, when I started fishing, you know, I, I didn't know these skills and I used to be a catch everything and kill everything and go eat everything. Uh, realizing that I didn't really need all that, you know, for a sustainable fishery. Um, so you, 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 t- you teach these to the clients, you know, and you tell them why yeah. and you, you know, and it's the passion I think that, that, that connects with them. And then, uh, um, you know, and next thing you know, they have great skills. They're wetting their hands. 
before they grab it to release the fish and just something as simple as that you know you're like oh cool you know that's that's really all it takes you know and get and don't fight it for so long if you can you know teach them how to strip it in that's why i kind of like nets at times it's just real quick you could get them in get them off get them back yeah what do you guys like for uh, weight and length rods out there if you're fishing just in the backcountry? For me, I have a Hardy um, that I that's a four weight that is like my go-to rod. But really, with clients, it's a three or four weight. Sometimes a five or six, but usually a three or four weight. Yeah, I'm guiding. Um, yeah, I'm guiding a lot of. I guide all four nineties, five nineties, Echo Sage. Um, yeah, and um, you can get away. I mean, Dave has a beautiful one weight. Uh, that our friend Matt made for him. Uh, he's supposedly making me a zero weight. These little sage darts, perfect for a lot of the stuff until you um, until you got to get a little bit further than t- uh, thirty feet. You know, sometimes that's why I like the five weight. It's not uncommon for the afternoon wind to pick up. Usually, it's going to be a zephyr. It's going to be at your back, so it's uh, kind of handy. But uh, in the high country, it's kind of in the afternoon starts kind of doing this uh, eddy thing. So you have the wind coming from every direction, and that's why I really like either a four or five weight nine foot. Just to have, and, and, and honestly, because I have a lot of beginners, I overweight my lines. I do that by either using an SA line, which they're already a half uh, a weight overweighted, um, or I'll just throw a simple uh, five weight line on a four weight. Uh, it helps them with the cast. You know, they can develop their loops better or even feel the load better. Um, but it also punches through the wind. You know, now saying that for dry fly fishing, you know, I'll also have that little more sensitive rod. Um, maybe something a little more delicate, like a Sage Sonic or something, just to give a better presentation. If we're looking for, uh, you know, some kind of light presentation, delicate dry fly, light tippet, you know, five to seven X is what I'm primarily using. When, when do you use a seven X? When are you using seven? What's that? I, ne- like? I never use a seven X. I'm using seven X on the smaller creeks. Um, especially when they're real skittish. Um, I, I try to keep my leader length about nine feet. So my clients can, I use tapered leaders so my clients can do it. Uh, personally, if I'm on a trip and some fish are being real skittish or they're seeing, you know, no line on the water, no fly line, you know, just leader. Uh, I'll go 7X and I'll go as far as 12 feet here. Uh, it's rare, though, that I'm going longer than 9 feet. Uh, and I could get away with 5X. You know, if you're nymphing, I, I do a lot of stuff with a bobber. I mean, I mean striking, okay? Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I stole that from Chris Daughters. <laughs> People are going to hate me for that. But this strike indicator, um, I use tapered leaders with my clients just so everything is casting a little easier for them. Um, if you're a good caster, I'm doing a 0x butt section, the straight 3x, uh, usually two heavy tungsten beaded nymphs like Prince nymphs, uh, maybe some split shot if it's faster, uh, anywhere from 8 to 10 feet. Euro nymphing. Um, you also got hundreds of Prince nymphs. Prince yeah, nymphs. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I bought Prince nymphs years ago by weight, not by uh, amount. Still use them. Yeah, I bought a couple pounds of Prince nymphs, but uh, they oh, have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me and my buddy Robert are still going through them this day. But um, you know, Euro nymphing. You know, you were mentioning that earlier. Um, you know, I was working at Radio Sports during the time uh, that the Shadow X was coming out, and I was doing a lot of fishing on the shoots with Mariusz uh, Lebowski, who's one of them. Um, he, was, uh, he wasn't the designer of the rod, but, man, did he do a lot of testing, and I was fortunate enough to fish with him quite a bit. Uh, he taught me pretty much everything I know about your own nymphing. Uh, there's a little bit of a learning curve, but once you kind of understand how to control that fly better, um it's 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 deadly it it's really deadly. is yeah. um you know and and i'll see Marush occasionally and he's still into it the guy's a fish magnet he'll outfish everybody 100 fish to one no problem 
but um, but he's constantly evolving, whether it's the leader material. I mean, I don't even know where he's at. Last time I saw him, he's like, this is stuff you can only get in like an Eastern Europe kind of thing. I'm right. Like, oh, yeah. He's got the end. He's from Poland, so he's got family back yeah. there. Oh, that's right. Friends. Yeah, he's from Poland. But, I mean, I'm not joking. The, the evolution of the Euro-Nymphian, especially the leader, is, um, you know, at the time, this is like five years ago, it was changing by the month. You know, it was like... You know, I got a I got a setup from Devin Olson. Uh, you know, it's basically 27 feet of maxima, down to like you know whatever you want to put, with a little cider to straight floral carbon, and it's deadly. You know, and once you actually pick that up, you know that sensitivity, especially with a Euro rod that has a really sensitive tip. Yeah. I mean, you can feel everything. You know, if you're bouncing on the bottom, you know if it's a fish hitting. It's it's incredible. It's not my favorite. You know, I think most people would say, hey, the dry fly, watching the fish come up and actually eat that fly is like the most exciting because you see it. What's your favorite way to fish, Dave? Uh, my favorite way, you know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I fish the Deschutes. I mean, I've always been into, the dry fly's always been my struggle. Dry fly. I mean, I love dry really? fly fishing, but I'm, you yeah. know, it's always been kind of a struggle for me. I've always, I've always loved nymph fishing, you know, and swinging flies, of course. I mean, that's kind of, but I, I mean, I think where I'm at now is I'm just, it's kind of cool because I'm, you know, kind of traveling around a little bit and thinking like, okay, where's the next place that we're going to go and try something different. So we're doing this Euro thing. I haven't, I've done a little bit of Euro nymphing, but you know, Pete's going to really show us, get us dialed in. Yeah. And I'm no expert, right? Like Euro nymphing is still a little bit of a foreign language for me. I've tried it. I had the opportunity to fish with George Daniels years ago. And oh, nice. I just real I just realized like I don't set half as much as I should. Like regardless of like you know how we're fishing, especially with nymph fishing, like I don't set half as much as I should. That guy's a machine. Yeah. Oh, right. He's setting all the time. Yeah. 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 You know, Amy Hazel, you know, she fishes the mm-hmm. John and Amy Hazel, you know, years ago. Oh, yeah. Um you know, she got in the Euro nymphing and in the case of the dispute is because, you know, like, well, we we're not seeing the bug hatches anymore. And, you know, and, um, she, you know, she was guiding at the, I think she still is guiding, but like, she got really good at your own nipping. I was following her on her blog and all this stuff, but like she was resorting to it because she couldn't catch as many fish as they used to dry fly fishing because, you know, because of the whole, you know, the whole disaster with the, with the water coming out of the dam on the dishutes and all this stuff, you know, like, it's like, we had to resort to this to catch fish because we weren't getting them to rise. That's kind of what I took through reading her different reports. And then but like thinking about that, it's kind of sad, you know, and I'm seeing the same kind of thing on the Merced, you know, like there's hatches that are dying off, right? Like the October caddis used to be something that I looked forward to the most throughout the favorite. year because it's big flies and yeah. it's late season. Mm-hmm. And I generally try to get some of my more experienced clientele out here then. And it's, it's almost non-existent anymore. So like, this is one of the things I kind of wanted to mention. I'm going to get depressing for a second right all right let's do it there's been a couple things (laughs) that have kind of driven me towards like this is the time to act like we are not we cannot play a passive role as anglers anymore um i when i was in the czech republic i got my first grayling a few years ago and i stumbled in into an edward burchinsky talk at a at a university if you guys haven't looked up edward burchinsky he's an incredible incredible photographer that kind of covers our current mass extinction if you guys don't know about the anthropocene it's our fault um we are currently in one of the six the sixth great mass extinction on this planet and i'm going to spew off some facts here that some of you may tune out or not but 
according to the World Wildlife Fund, we've lost 70% of our wild animals since 1970. I've looked at other facts, too, that say we've lost at least 50% of all of the animals on this planet. We've severely degraded over 75% of the land on the planet. Um, One million species are facing extinction. Our current extinction rate is 1,000 to 10,000 times higher than our natural rates. Over 75% of crop varieties have disappeared in the last 100 years. If we stay on track, California's freshwater species will be extinct in the next 100 years. Uh, 90% of our marine fish stocks are fully exploited or overfished. Reefs, as we know them, could disappear by 2050. 25% of our bumblebees are at risk of extinction. They produce a good portion of our food. By 2050, researchers believe there will be more plastic in the oceans than fish. So, like, these things are disheartening, right? And it's happened in a relatively short period of human history. But I think it's really important to just take responsibility. I mean, so many of us, you've either got money or time. So, if I can ask the audience, like, if you've got one or the other, throw it at something you care about, right? You don't have to, you don't have to get involved with your local Trout Unlimited chapter, although you should, right? You you know, if you throw a donation at American Rivers, they they knocked out some 65 dams last year. Like that's that's money well spent. Like find something you care about, even if it's teaching young kids how to fly fish, right? Like this this is not business as usual. Like you shouldn't you know, it, it sucks because like, especially with insect loss in our country, it happens gradually or you, it's like dwindles year by year. Like that, one of the things that made me fall in love with fly fishing was this green drake hatch on the Green River where my buddy at the time and my dad went out the upper green near Pine Dill where I'm going to be in a couple of weeks. It was magical. Every single fish in the river started rising. I got my first 20 plus since brown. Like it captivated me. It captivated my heart. It's part of the reason I'm here. Like the, my buddy that was with me, I haven't stayed in contact with, but I think he guides on the Henry's Fork now, right? Like that day potentially changed a couple young men's life, right? Maybe it doesn't exist like that, like it used to be. And I mean, it seriously isn't on a lot of our major rivers. Greg's talking about some depressing things on the Deschutes, right? These are, these are, this is our outlet for mental health. This is our outlet for, you know, whatever is happening in our life. Like one of the things that has bonded Greg and I deeply together is the loss of our moms, right? Fly fishing is one of those tools that's kind of helped me navigate one of the most challenging times in my life. I have my buddy Oliver that's no longer with us that used to guide up at King Salmon Lodge. And he, I, I owe him for getting me back out on the river. Like this is, this is life changing, right? So like whether it's, whether it's playing a role in a young person's life or whether it's donating your time and money, like just think of something you care about. And I'd like beg any person to spend a little bit of time to just try to make a difference. You know, there's there's no act that is too small. Um, one of the other things that kind of really impacted me on a deep level was last year I got engaged down in Patagonia, and that is one of my favorite countries. Right? It's it's California on steroids. It's on the Pacific Coast. There's giant fish in small water. Um, little shout out to Estancia del Zorro and uh, Cinco Rios. Those guys have been a big part of why I guide. A big part of why I love why I love to fly fish too. Um, but th- there's a couple parks that I went down there after proposing to my wife. 
I went to Patagonia National Park. We're talking a sheep ranch that was severely degraded to the point where there was almost nothing left. If you allow nature to rewild, if you now allow nature to return, it's amazing what can happen. Right. The, the visitor center there alone. I mean, we have a great visitor center here in Yosemite, but that was the most impactful visitor center in a national park I've ever been in. Not only did they provide like show you the impact of biodiversity loss, but they allowed you to kind of like offer up solutions to the future. So like if people haven't watched the movie, A Wild Idea or read the book, I mean, these guys are heroes in my mind in Yosemite. They're dirtbags. They lived behind a dumpster. They ate cat food. You know, Shenard and Tompkins are some of my heroes, right? Chris Tompkins has continued to lead that kind of progress forward in a different country. I mean, it's like John Muir in a modern era, right? More private land donation than anybody in our history in this country. So, you know, even dirtbags can make a difference, right? Like the little things count. Yeah. They really do, especially nowadays. So, right. That's good. No, that's well said. I think you, uh, I think that's even though there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, it sounds like you're still optimistic. Do do you feel, do you feel optimistic still about looking ahead and, and knowing that, you know, people can make a difference? You know, it depends on the day, right? Um, I was sitting away from my client the other day, and the guy across the street's throwing cigarette butts on the ground, you know? Yeah. There's always always that. that. You know, stuff like that. Or or, or pessimistic, but. um, Or driving past my favorite section in Yosemite, and a person throws a glass bottle out the window. You know, like these, these are things we deal with guiding in the park. And usually it starts with, I live here. You know, let me challenge why you're doing this. Are you familiar with Leave No Trace? Well, you, you said you are, but what are you, what are you in fact doing right now? Like, you don't need to crush people. You don't need to make fun of them. You don't need to berate them. But you do need to check people because, you know. Oh, forest fire, too. I, especially <laughs> I mean, I, now. I get yeah. tired of getting evacuated. Yeah. But, but, That's right. No, I, I think you got to be. Here's the thing. Like, as a ranger, <clears throat> you might come to Yosemite and you might see a mess if you're in Yosemite Valley. All right. We clean it up. That's where 95% of the population goes. It's the 5% of the park. And your average visitor spends four and a half to five hours there. Okay. They go to the lower fall, they go get lunch, and then they go sit in traffic. They go home to San Francisco. Okay. Whether they come on a bus, whatever it is, that's, that's your average visitor in Yosemite. Okay. I was fortunate enough. He's no longer with us. I worked with mentors of mine who are legendary park rangers. And one was Bob Orr. And I'll never forget this training. I was a young ranger in my 20s. You know, I'm in my late 40s now. And he said, you know, you'll be working at the visitor center someday and somebody's going to come up to you and they're going to say, hey, I got four hours in Yosemite. What should I do? (laughs) And Bob Orr was completely honest and completely real. He said, you look at that person because you're a public servant and you tell them, go find a place next to the river. Tell them to find a rock next to the river to sit on and cry. And you know, I had a guy the other day, great client, good fisherman. His son was a great fisherman. He said, you know, I'm here for three days. I think that's enough to, to see it all, you know, and I've been, I've been coming here for 30 years. I've lived here now for 20 years. I feel like I barely even scratched the surface. It's a lifetime out there. You know what I mean? And it's, a, it's like fly fishing. It's a lifetime of learning. Um, but I think just like why the national parks were created was to get people to fall in love to protect land. I mean, to protect land. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, Ken Burns' um, best idea. It, it's, a, it's an amazing film. 
And, and I tell people it's truly one of the greatest gifts that the United States has ever given the planet is the idea of a national park or just land that we're not going to do anything on. Now, we do have Hetchy here and there's all these problems with traffic and stuff, but it's still probably the most pristine piece of land that you can find. And the majority of people who come here are awesome. You know, all it takes is that small percentage to like ruin it, whether it's trash or cigarette butt on the ground or whatever it is. And I got to tell you, out of the five million visitors who come here, David said four million, it's five now. It looks pretty damn good. We also That's because of the resources. It's because there are rangers out there. There are visitors out there. There are people who are stewards. There's a lot of dedicated and, staff. There's a lot of people that care about yeah. it. We also have something that if you want to get involved with, I encourage you. It's a, an event called Facelift at the end of September. It's kind of like right. the TED Talks of the rock climbing world. You, awesome. have, you have inspirational speakers. Beer. You get drunk for a week. Wine. People hit the rock walls. They're hooting and hollering, but they're picking up trash all day. They're they're giving back to the thing they care about. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my buddy Kenny started it. Um, gosh, probably twenty years ago. Ken now. Yeager. Ken Yeager. Yeah, and um, the Yosemite Climbing Association. And I'm talking. It's a great event where they're cleaning up. You know, not just trash on the road, but administrative trash. You know, stuff that's been out there for a long time. Every night it's raffles because it's got sponsors from like Patagonia and you name it. And, it's just a great time. It's, you know, speakers are like, you know, rock climbers who have done the speed record, guys like Alex Honnold. It, it's an awesome time, but we get involved too. And we're kind of like noticed the fishing guys and we're always down in like our neck of the woods on the river. And um, it's a great event, you know, um, come out because fly fishers, we are stewards, you know. Um, you or at know. least hopefully we become, right? You know, I, I can't ever imagine going to a river, you know, like, I did go to the river this week and I did see a bunch of trash. I was like, Oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding me. I, I can't imagine that I would ever like want to go there and see that, you know, even for those people who left that, you know, and I like to think that it slipped out of their pocket, but no, this was enough trash to be like, no, maybe they were drunk, whatever it was, they're breaking bottles. Just, I was floating I down. I can't understand that mentality. I, I never will. But I also know that's a small percentage. You yeah. know what I mean? And I, even people that are slightly misguided, right? Like that maybe care about it or have been there their whole life. Like this week I was floating down the Merced. I'm targeting one of the bigger fish that I've got like trying to headhunt this summer. And this guy eats a mango and throws the, the mango peels on the beach. Right. And that's, you know, it is biodegradable. It's not the worst of all sins, mm -hmm. but I don't want to look at that as much as I don't want to look yeah. at a banana peel. And I told him, hey, what are you doing? I live here. And he goes, are you kidding me? That's just a mango peel. And I go, you know, <laughs> A, that habituates bears. Like, I've got people on the bear management team that would be pissed at you. But, like, oh, yeah. nobody wants to look at it. You know, that that's leave only footprints, right? Yeah, you, we, you, we you know what's a big problem I have? And, and I'm, I'm not sure if you guide Dave or not. Uh, sometimes people will throw, and I, and I see this, like, you know, I've been on drip boats. But um, sunflower seeds. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know they just start spitting them, and and I truly believe in a national park that's wrong. But I believe that's anywhere wrong. You know, spit them in a spit them in a bottle. But I, that's kind of the most awkward part of my job. Yeah. It's like, hey, how like, do you? Like, here, yeah, yeah, like, hey, uh, you paid to be here, but yeah. please don't do that. Yeah, yeah. You're educating him. Well, and you're and you're educating yeah. like right now. You know, I mean, that's the cool thing is that 
we have a lot of listeners all around the country and there's different levels of all this, but you guys are, you know, you're doing some education, you know, and we've had yeah. leave no trace on, and we just talked to the, you know, we got the dirtbag diaries. We're probably going to put together some sort of a, a podcast there oh, with those guys. I, and yeah. In Yosemite, the saying here is the crazier the story, the more truthful it is. I've had, I've had people that have literally asked if we're saltwater fishing, saltwater fishing. Yeah. We're up at 8,000 feet fishing in Tuolumne. I've had two people, two people now that didn't understand that we were in a freshwater fishery. So sometimes it's simply just re-education, right? Yeah. Like right, it's, right. It's, I mean, it's real. And if I could, if I could name, just say a little quote right now from Teddy Roosevelt, who's one of our all-time presidents that, I mean, he freaking got shot and gave a speech. He's a legendary outdoorsman. But That's right. at any rate, he protected some of the most land out of any president. But it starts with, it is also vandalism wantonly to destroy or to permit the destruction of what is beautiful in nature, whether it be a cliff, a forest, or a species of mammal or bird. Here in the United States, we turn to our rivers and streams into sewers and dumping grounds. We pollute air, we destroy forests, and exterminate fishes, birds, and mammals, not to speak of vulgarizing charming landscapes with hideous advertisements. But at last, it looks as if our people are awakening. So if, if the audience can awaken, if they can pay that forward, it's progress, right? I mean, that sentiment you could repeat through any generation in this country, and it would hold true. But there's not a lot of time to act anymore. I mean, I, I don't think there is. You know, you can have differences on whatever side of the aisle. Like at the end of the day, we're fishermen, we're conservationists, we're hunters. We care about the environments that we interact in. And I think that's one of the most important things you can do. Um, if there's one, one more organization I can kind of plug here, it's American Rivers. They literally got rid of 65 dams last year. They take out dams that block spawning access. They protect wild rivers. They work for good river policy. It's a great group. If you want to get involved, it's AmericanRivers.org. We talked about Trout Unlimited. We talked about Hetch Hetchy. There's one more thing. David, kind of talk about your real recycling, dude. Yeah. Hey, so, hold on. Time out. Dave, I got to tell you this. So last year I came back from Oregon, five years. I showed up at David Gregory's. You know, I'm picking. We have tons of waiting booths. We have all the gear provided for folks. And he's like, hey, I got this idea. And um, I got out my camera. I'm like, well, let me film it. I mean, you know, I'm, we do social media very little, you know, but I hate it. we do it because it's kind of <laughs> yeah. necessary. Yeah, and I felt this idea. I have no idea. It's just, you know, on the moment, a uh, little cameo thing going on. And um, in fact, I'll send you that video if you like. But um, he tells me about this program that he's like, I'm thinking of starting this thing called Real Recycling. And he's all, what it is, is that we're going to take kids who are underprivileged, uh, whether it be disability, whether it be, you know, some kind of social economic thing, whatever it might be, especially kids in the local community who like look at the river every single day. And what it's going to be, Greg, he said, is um, it's going to be where I'm going to get guides or even individuals to donate functional gear, uh, rods and reels. So really, um, really, we take a kid out Hold on, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> where we take them out because it was it blew my mind. It, it literally blew my mind. Uh, he said where we take a kid out for a half day or a full day and we teach them the basics, you know, to get them successful, to get them independently fishing on their own. And at the end of the day, they get the gear. And I my my jaw dropped. I was like, 
That's amazing. And I contacted Chris Daughters, you know, the owner of the Caddisfly and Oregon blog. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, Chris, can I get this on the blog? He's like, oh, you let me know what you need. I'll plug that because it sounds like a great idea. And it's phenomenal. And I know David's done it down in uh, Chile, but we have a couple of local kids here, um, you know, just because of whatever reasons, you know, um, they have some, you know, some handicaps and some, uh, you know, um, you know, things going on. Uh, some social economic things and all that kind of stuff too, and maybe even some you know developmental issues. But but they love the river and they love fishing, and we're taking them out and we're giving them gear, and we're setting them up for success. And hopefully, you know, these are the new stewards. These are the going to be the next, uh, maybe even guides if we're lucky. You know, um, who are going to be what I call the guardians of the miraculous, um, being the rivers that we fish. How do you as we go? How do you not get behind that, right? Like in in regardless of real recycling and what I want to do, this is something you take to your local community. This doesn't require any sort of waiver. This doesn't require a background check, although it might if you get involved with real recycling. You take whatever is sitting in your garage. I know guys with storage units full of gear. Literally. Right. Excuse my language. A storage unit full of gear right so like yeah just sitting there it doesn't get used right we're all obsessed with having the new toy or having you know the brand new gear or that cycle that repetitive cycle of feeding into the new stuff what happens to the old stuff we need to recycle it you need to pay it forward you need it to put it in the hands of somebody that's actually going to use it because if it's collecting dust it doesn't serve a purpose so like if you can create a lifelong angler or reach out to anybody that you see that itch or that spark in um i think that's one of the best things we can do as fly anglers because not only are they going to get obsessed and fall in love with the same thing that we are but then they're going to be able to kind of protect it for the future. And I think that's one of the most crucial things we can do right now. So, you know, it's important that this stuff is operable. Make sure it works, right? You don't want to give somebody a a setup that doesn't have it, but whether it's like the old classic trout or the old clear water rig, like take that and pay it forward. And the, the first round I did of it was this past year. I went and got engaged in Patagonia, which was super meaningful for me. And I went to Cinco Rios, Cinco Rios and Estancia del Zorro. And there's guides that I've been fishing with for years down there. And I reached out to all of them and said, you know what? Just find whatever kid in your local community you feel is deserving, right? Somebody somebody that wouldn't have had this, this opportunity, and pick that kid and take him out for a day and then surprise him with that gift at the end of the day. I mean, you're talking about some of the biggest smiles you could have. And one of my one of my favorite guides down there, Hector, that works at Estancia del Zor. If you haven't fished with him, you should. That's one of the best spring creeks in the world. He took it to a whole nother level. He started teaching kids in his local school system and even started his own organization to start encouraging participation, encouraging catch and release, which isn't really existent in his local community, and teaching them to care for their environment. And something that I say uh, repetitively is like a ripple be- can become a wave, right? And that's another example. You start small and then something can can go beyond you, right? What, what's the website? So this, as of now, you know, I've been a little tentative about starting it in the States beyond Greg and myself because it requires a certain amount of vetting, right? And I don't have experience requiring, you know, starting a nonprofit. But next 
next year, there's going to be a website that's going to be rolled out. They're going to, there's going to be an opportunity to donate. There's going to be an opportunity to get involved. It's just taking time, right? I got married this year. There's my own priorities in life. If you reach out to me, it's david at yosemite-outfitters.com. You send me gear, I promise you I'm going to put it in the hands of a kid that deserves it. Oh, good. So you send, send that to me in the interim, but then ultimately there, there will be a website and there will be a little bit more of a vis- mission, a little bit more of involvement. Okay. Uh, this is great. No, I think that yeah. this has been an amazing conversation. I, uh, like you said, we'll send everybody out to, uh, yeah, yosemite-outfitters.com. And, uh, I think it's been good because we started with the bears or a little bit on the bears and this is all connected, you know, everything we've talked about, uh, in really education and conservation. And I'm not sure how well the bears are doing, but, I feel like we all have some work to do. So I appreciate you guys for shedding light on all these uh, great organizations and uh, definitely look forward to keeping in touch with you. Yeah. And I hope people come explore Yosemite. You know, 20% of the diversity of this state exists there. There is a lifetime of opportunities that are presented, right? Like, don't, I mean, you have to go to Yosemite Valley. You have to experience it, but try to branch out, try to put in the effort and you will be rewarded. This is such a magical user-friendly place to interact outdoors. Yeah. If you're planning a trip there, like we're, you know, we talked fishing and stuff, but if you're planning to go there, is there a one place, a resource website, you just go to the National Park Service or what do you recommend if somebody hasn't been there and they want to plan a trip sometime next year? I mean, the all encompassing one is National Park Service, right? You look up Yosemite, they've got from user statistics to backcountry references to fishing regulations to whatever, you're going to have the most information there. And then recreation.gov, however much Greg and I hate it, is the tool you use to make reservations. So that's something to worth looking into and make them in advance, right? Like wilderness permits six months in advance are what you should do for, for kind of planning for the future. Most people end up waiting until about a week ahead of time, and they do that 40% of remaining permits to try to get out in the backcountry, which is also good. We used to be able to, like, walk up day of and see what's available and then just kind of travel on a whim, which is how I love to do it. But it's recreation.gov now, for better, for worse. Yeah, perfect. Good stuff. All right, guys, well, we'll be in touch, and uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate what you're doing, and uh, yeah, thanks for for letting us talk with you for a while. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com, and please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, Dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.